0: Programming Throwdown, episode 106, Augmented Reality with Connell from Zabar Take it away, Jason.
1: Hey, everyone. So we have a really awesome episode. I think a lot of folks um, have tried, and we were just talking about this before uh, You know, we started recording, have tried um, uh, virtual reality and have even tried augmented reality um, and may not have even known it. That's what it was called. And so we're going to really dive into Um, this feature I think a lot of folks have called you know VR and AR kind of the next the next smartphone right or the next platform and uh, there's a huge amount of potential here and it's already being used by tons of people and so we're going to try and learn as much as we can and we have Connell here who is the CTO of Zappar and uh, yeah thanks a lot for uh, for coming on the show Connell
2: Mm, thanks for having me it's a pleasure
1: Cool, cool. How are you? Uh, how are you doing? How are you making making do with uh, you know these uh, crazy circumstances?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, not bad. Um, we're based in London, uh, and so we had a big lockdown earlier on in the year. And during that process, we of course, as a business, uh, moved to complete working from home. Um, and I've actually just taken the decision to continue to have a completely flexible working scenario for people. So. Um some of us will be going back to the office who choose to do so. And, and some of us will be working remotely for the foreseeable. Um, so, yeah, it's yeah. been interesting. And, but, you know, we've we've not really suffered any loss in productivity as a result, which has been which has been great. And it's obviously not the case for everybody, which is unfortunate.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So as a company that 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 is centered around augmented reality, were you able to, you know, with this kind of new environment, like, like find a new product, or we're able to sort of see some area that has been underserved by by augmented reality. Since so many things now have to be done virtually,
2: uh, I think so. But I would say that they're not necessarily sectors that we hadn't seen before, but more that are growing faster as a result. So to take one example, product visualization in the home, augmented reality is a tool you can use to to enhance product visualization in the home. And and obviously, if people can't be going to stores to uh, see and touch products in real life, um, then businesses are looking to see how they can help users experience what those products would be like. Um, and you don't get all the way with something like AR or, or indeed with VR, uh, but you, you get better than just seeing it on a page on your phone, for example. Um, so yeah, there's like a sense. class of things like that. No, no, there are specific niche use cases which are kind of interesting. So one of the uh, the mechanisms for augmented reality, which people might have tried before, is face tracking. So that's when you take content um, and apply it to a user's face in a camera view. So you might have tried face filters in Snapchat, for example, or an mm-hmm. example of this, where you, you put some uh, 3D model around the face or, or head, or you'll distort the head in some way. Um, how to fit a mask properly, for example, is a a use case where uh, face tracking helps with that. You know, you can show users on their own face that the mask should cover their nose as well as below their mouth and uh, how it, you know, should be attached around behind their uh, ears and what have you. So there've been some interesting niche-specific use cases like that. Um, But I'd say that, uh, you know, on the whole, Augmented reality is an industry is has so many sectors, so many use cases that in some sectors that will have been affected by an economic downturn, and in other places there' will be opportunities. um so a, a mixed bag as as is I'm sure the case with lots of industries at the moment,
1: yeah, that totally makes sense. i I remember reading something which said uh, exactly what you said, which is the you know the 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 coronavirus situation kind of accelerated trends you know, that, that they were expecting to take 10 years, you know, we're accelerating them so that they happen in 10 weeks. I know personally, I mean, I started buying all my clothes online, which is something I'd, I'd never really done in the past. And, uh, um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of people are kind of changing and and, and you're starting to realize the like latent advantages. Like one of the advantages i found is, you know, um, uh, I mean, Patrick and I are both kind of like tall, lanky people, And so I I like to buy, especially shirts that are medium tall, which is a very rare size. Um, and now that I'm online, I can always get, uh, you know, get that size and any style. And so that almost kind of trumps being able to try it on in the store because, because you get the fit you want. And so, yeah, I think a lot of these trends, it's really going to be interesting when this is all over, like what remains, like what, what will be popular.
2: Yeah, I I was having a a similar discussion with one of my colleagues the other day in terms of looking at things that have have been huge changes in our history. And, you know, um, the things like 9-11, which obviously changed how we travel by air, for example, um, Mm. and, uh, you know, mindsets and and, um, uh, attitudes in lots of ways. It seems to me like this sort of thing will just eclipse something like 9-11 in terms of the the ongoing changes it has for our society. Um, So it's going to be super fascinating to see what happens in the next like five years when it comes to working and and being.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that, that, you know, dovetailing back, you know, I think, I think AR and VR are probably like one of the areas that are going to really explode because of this. Um, like actually just tying these two examples, I mean, it'd be awesome if I could actually see what that shirt looked like on me, um, before Mm -hmm. I bought it. Right. And that's something that, you know, isn't available at, at at least any of the stores that I checked out online.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Even just being able to see the physical size of something in your environment, even if it's, you know, not got exactly the right 3D rendering to make it look exactly like your shirt really would, mm-hmm. just being able to see, you know, either on a table next to a real one of your shirts, oh, that's how it compares size-wise is very oh, valuable. Oh, yeah, it's
1: a good idea. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Cool. So awesome. There's, there's lots oh, of interesting great. ways. Yeah, so so, why don't we explain, um, you know, people have heard the term VR, uh, probably a lot of people have even heard the term AR, but why don't you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what does virtual reality actually mean um, and, and what is the difference between that and augmented reality?
2: Sure. So virtual reality uh, is a class of technologies that replace the environment uh, that you're in as you experience it. So, an example of that would be where you put a headset on and uh, that headset has a screen in front of your eyes and as you look around your room uh, you you experience a different environment. so it might be a planet far away or it might be um, a, a shopping environment or you know it could be anything the The point I suppose, with virtual reality is it's just not the one that you're actually in it's, mm-hmm. it's some virtual content. Um, so a, a classic sci-fi example, the holodeck in Star Trek, is a, your almost idealized virtual reality environment where people can walk around and it's almost like they're actually at the place that's being represented. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh Augmented reality uh, is halfway between virtual reality and our real-world environment. What augmented reality does is it starts with the room that you're currently in, or or you're um, in the case the uh, case of face tracking we. As we discussed, it starts with a camera view of your actual real face, uh, and then it takes virtual content and adds that into that environment as if it's actually there present with you. Uh, and so as I say, that could be you know, a hat on your head that's uh, you're, you're previewing with a face filter experience to see what it might look like. It could be um, pointing at your living room and seeing a virtual chair in that space in order to see what it would look like, where it to actually be in your room. Um, We can also uh, track things. So I I should explain, I suppose tracking is the process of uh, working out where something is in your environment in order to be able to attach content to it. So face tracking, uh, it's an algorithm that finds where in a camera image your face is so that then when you come to put 3D content on top of it, you know exactly where it should be to line it up on on the screen. Um, And so you can track things like faces, you can track things like surfaces or the environment around you and you can track images and and other things um uh for example uh people might have used a connect microsoft connect it's this camera Mm. you could get for xbox and if you stood in front of the camera uh the xbox would be able to know your uh where your arms and legs are in in the world and so there would be gameplay experiences where you you move your arms in order to to um uh, to move your character in the game, and so that would be a, a body tracker or, or a skeleton tracker, if you like. Um, and so, well, augmented reality is, is a huge class of these types of technologies, and there's lots of different ways it's implemented. But that core principle is it's your environment, but some additional virtual content is added.
1: Cool, that makes sense. And so, it, it, um, you know, I think virtual reality um, is. Um, you know, there's definitely some, you know, let's say black magic or something that requires definitely expertise to understand how, um, you know, when you turn your head, how it 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 sort of knows. But you can you can kind of intuit it from things like cell phones, where you know there's clearly a compass, and if you're on you know Google Maps or Apple Maps, and you turn the phone, the 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 point on the blue dot, you know, attached to the blue dot turns right and so it's more intuitive alter, uh, uh, augmented reality is the one that seems like just totally black magic. Like how, how does it take this picture and realize that there is this surface that's, that's, that's going in this direction, you know, that, that a table that you can put something on, how does it distinguish that from the wall? I think that is something that really just blows people's mind. And, and, uh, yeah, what would be, you know, your, your, answer to somebody who asked like just how how do, how can something like that work
2: that's a really good question and uh, i should say our ceo uh, at zapper casper he uh, is a fantastic guy but by his own admission he's not uh, like super tech uh um he's definitely tech savvy but he's not a programmer or anything like that i had exactly this conversation with him where we've tried to say like uh, how how does it go from being like pixels on a screen to being an experience that uh, understands the world you're in. Uh, and I suppose underlying this, it's the same with lots of other really complex systems where if you actually break it down into a, a kind of pipeline of of constituent parts where each each part in that pipeline is kind of more easily understandable, then together, when you build it all together, you end up with something that, that seems like more than the sum of its parts. Um, so I can give you an example for some of those parts in an AR circumstance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the very first lowest level, we have, for example, a stream of camera frames coming from a camera on a mobile phone. And so those, that's just like a stream of image files that you might get on your computer, like PNGs or JPEGs. At the end of the day, it's uh, a file of data that, uh, where each uh, little bit of that file is a pixel on the sc- in the screen of that uh, or in the sensor of that camera, if you like. And so the very first stage in an AR process is to take that stream, uh, and I should say different algorithms for different types of tracking work in different ways. But let's say that we want to track uh, the surface of our table. Uh, what the first thing that will happen in, in lots of these uh, algorithms is it will take that, all of those pixels and reduce the amount of data that's involved there into a much smaller set of data, but with that data has a bit more meaning. So the first thing you might do is look for corners in the image or um, areas that are high contrast little features in the image. Uh, And it's the sort of thing that your eye would be drawn to if you were looking at a table. So there might be a knot in the wood in the table. uh, Or there might just be uh, kind of grains in the wood. Or if it's um, a marble table, there would be marbling. Just little bits of interesting Mm -hmm. visual content in that image. And so we have algorithms that can look through the pixels and say, you know, this little group has more high contrast pixels than other areas. Um, and with some clever uh, uh, choice of how we define those uh, elements, we end up with being able to say, you know, at this point in the image, there's something interesting. At this point in the image, there's something interesting. And indeed, if we look between the frames, those are relatively consistent. So that the grain of, or the, the knot in the wood in this frame versus a knot of wood in the next frame looks sufficiently similar that, similar that between those frames, when we we're calculating what's going on, we can say that particular place in the image has moved from there to there between these frames. Oh, uh, and then then what you typically do in the kind of next stage up is you take a ton of these matches or correspondences between these frames. Uh, and you uh, do some, effectively, geometry to work out if that was there in last frame and that was there in that frame and it's now here and that one's now here what has the camera done how's the camera moved in order to make sure that those places all match up between the two different frames um and then the complexity is just from there you know how you work that maths out you end up with a set of maths that matches very similar to what you get when you're dr- like rendering 3d content in a computer game um and uh, so, so we have uh, matrix maths or, or linear algebra. Um, if you uh, studied that at school or university, um, we end up with matrices that represent the movement of objects and cameras. And those are exactly the sorts of maths that we use then to say, now take this 3D model and position it into this scene uh, as if the camera had moved between these frames from here to here.
1: Got it. Um, so, so the idea is like if you have a single... If you have a single picture with a with a knot and a table, then there's kind of like a cone coming out of your eye or out of the eye of the camera, and the knot can really be anywhere in that cone. I mean, the knot could be you know uh, hundreds and hundreds of feet away if this is some gigantic table. maybe you're at a table conference or something. Um, um, but uh, um but but, you know, it's somewhere in that cone. And then if you were to move your head or if you were to, you know, close one eye and open the other eye, if you had stereo vision. Right. But you can kind of accomplish this by moving as well. Now you have this second cone that sees the knot. And so the knot actually exists you know, at the intersection of those two cones. And so you're kind of doing this over and over again.
2: Yeah, ex- exactly. And sometimes... um Sometimes if you know enough about your environment, you can work things out without having to know the, or without having to track things frame to frame, if you like. So if I know that I'm looking for a very specific picture in an image and I know what the feature points, those points of interest on that image are, I might be able to just from a single frame of a video, uh, be able to say, you know, that that image is, is here and it's positioned and rotated in this way in the camera frame. But most of the time we use the fact that we have multiple frames coming in from the camera over time to to track an object smoothly in the camera um, and I should say that these technologies are the types of technologies that were you know they're used in uh, computer-generated graphics for movies you know when you mm-hmm. have the t-rex in Jurassic Park uh, running along behind your truck the, um, the the computation and the processing that the computer uh, the uh, visual graphics and effects people do is a kind of similar thing uh, for working out the environment, working out the motion of cameras between frames in order to then apply the same but other way round motion to the dinosaur so that it moves um, in the uh, in the frame in the correct way. Um, the difference with modern... Um, augmented reality that people might use is that we just have to be able to do that processing very quickly so it has to be 30 frames every second in order to get smooth video that would come from a camera image and in some cases if you if you're wearing headsets for example you actually want 60 frames per second if you can you know actually quite a lot of high uh, high speed computation has to happen in order to make that work
1: cool that makes sense so i think um Okay, so we have these we have these points. So we've, we've discovered, you know, here's the corner of the table. Here's some knots in the wood. Um, here's some marks on the wall that we can track, right? Um, and, and we're able to do that in real time, which that by itself sounds really, really hard. I have to admit, I mean, I don't know how that actually happens. That's pretty remarkable. Um, uh, so then how do we go from that to some 3D, you know, geometry to say that, you know, this this is a surface that that, that uh, has a normal in this direction. And, and and so we could put a shirt on it. Uh, we wouldn't want to put a shirt on the wall, for example.
2: Yeah. Um, well, so the answer is there's, there's different ways that you can do that. Um, some of that, so surface detection, for example, uh, with surface detection, if you want to say like the table is flat in front of you, normally you would also supplement this algorithm with things like uh, gyroscope data or accelerometer data from your device so in modern smartphones they uh, have a, a very good gyroscope so that the phone can tell very well when small rotations of the device happen so it can know oh the users turn the device a few degrees this way they also have not normally quite as good a sensor but still good enough to kind of get things started an accelerometer which knows which way gravity is so it knows relative to where you're holding the device, gravity is in that direction. And then a combination of that sensor, a combination of the gyroscope knowing, oh, well, you've now moved the device by this number of degrees from that gravity position that we understood. And you add that into the images that we're getting from the camera. You can build um, we call this sensor fusion. So you take all of these sensor, sensory inputs, including the camera, and you fuse them together to build up an understanding of that environment. Um, But the the process of doing surface detection, so so knowing that your table is in front of you and what height it's at and um, uh, the, you know, the extents of the table, so how far it goes in each direction, that's quite a complex process that uh, is, uh, you know, a a lot of research time, I suppose, has gone into how you solve that problem, um, especially how you do it real time.
1: Yeah. I mean, that sounds, that sounds just insanely difficult. I don't know how, no idea how that works. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, it's definitely, so it's called surface detection. And so that's, that's that process that takes these set of key points and maybe the raw images as well. And then figures out sort of a set of, uh, I, I guess it's sort of some kind of segmentation and then figures out for each of those segments, which way it's actually facing.
2: Uh, yeah. And, and lots of the time, you don't actually need to know very much about the surface. You can be surprised, I suppose, about how much you can get away with just being able to track a single point in, in your camera image and then knowing, for example, which way up is in your world. Um, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're if you're happy to uh, be having an experience that takes place uh, on your floor, so on a surface that's not going to move in your environment or on a static table, then being able to track a single point and know which way up is, you can actually do quite a lot of interesting experiences with that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, that makes Uh, a ton of sense, right? Because I mean, mean, most of the things you're interested in are at 90 degrees. Like you're interested in walls, tables, floors, and so you don't have to consider all the possibilities there.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, lots of the time uh, technology, like that we have at zapper will be used for a creative experience where you might have a character appear and be talking to you or maybe it's a a virtual tennis player and you can play some tennis with them um you don't really need to be understanding too much really about the environment that the user is in in order to facilitate that that said there are a ton of use cases where actually knowing the where you know what the actual surfaces are where the uh, walls are etc um are you know that 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 facilitates quite a lot of applications that you can't otherwise do. Um, it just, the more you want to understand about the environment, the more computationally difficult it becomes to, to work it out. Um, and makes so, sense. yeah, and the devices like the, the iPhone, for example, have machine learning chips in them specifically to try and process data a lot faster to be able to um, uh, run uh, neural networks on the images that come in, um, in order to, to do this. And, Whereas in other circumstances, so with our technology, for example, lots of our tech is supported in the web browser and uh, has to run in the much more limited computational environment that your web browser is. So in, in that sort of circumstance, we have, I suppose, a different set of appropriate applications that we can support based on the the type of computations we can do.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And one thing you know, I want to point folks to, if they missed episode 102, um with Max Sklar, we talked about um um you know Bayesian mathematics and dealing with uncertainty. And this is you know a perfect example of that where you have an accelerometer, it has error. Um you have a gyroscope with error and you have these images and that that algorithm um there's 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 like irreducible error. I mean there are things that are just ambiguous and there's also error in the algorithm itself, right? Um and so and so the way you kind of deal with all of that is is you just kind of put all of that uncertainty into this into this fusion system and it kind of reconciles that so if your accelerometer is very unhappy uh, i don't actually know very much about mechanical things well let's assume you dropped your phone and that made your accelerometer unhappy for a few minutes or something it it would it would uh you know the system would understand that and it would compensate with the other devices right or if you're in a very flat room then maybe you know, that could be compensated by the hardware on your phone. And, and it all kind of works together in harmony.
2: Uh, that's ex- exactly right. Uh, and uh, ex- those exact techniques that you're talking about, um, uh, modeling the error, trying to trying to uh, work out how certain you can be about some sort of truth in the environment that you're trying to understand uh, versus the, the sensor input you're getting. We also have uh, different lag. Between things like sensors and cameras, so we might, for example, get very high resolution and very fast uh, data back from the gyroscope. Um, I, I also am not very mechanically minded, so I have no idea why gyroscopes are better than accelerometers. Yeah, but same here. gyroscopes seem to be really good. Actually, uh, just an
1: aside, it's. Uh, I I remember reading something and people should check this out. But the way the gyroscope works, you know, it's such in such a small device is it's like an extremely tiny ball. uh, And in that hollow ball, there's like some kind of fluid and another ball. And basically where those two balls contact is is how it determines. But but it's like macroscopic or microscopic and uh it's unbelievable you should see uh you know you could do a Google search or something and see how the the gyroscope in your phone like what it actually looks like it's remarkable
2: i I find it fascinating to think about like all of the tech that sits in these devices in our pockets and you know i, I think if 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 when you know we're at the gates of heaven and the uh we were to be shown exactly the complexity inside the inside the phone in some sort of moment of enlightenment. I think it would be incredibly mind blowing. <laughs>
1: like, yeah, it would be like taking uh, George Washington and putting him in a time machine and putting him in, in Times Square or something. Right. I mean, it would just blow our mind, uh, you know, and 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 it's the encapsulation is incredible. Right. That it's it's uh, we've taken all of this complexity. But we've been able to provide value to just about everybody.
2: Mm, indeed. And I think there's a there's a kind of uh, a comfort in, in how broad we have been able to use computing, I suppose, as a as a, a race, because with uh, if you were to take George Washington and bring him to now and then like show him, some, show him some cat video from from Reddit, <laughs> he might be like, <laughs> "What? why, why are we using the technology like this? Um,
1: yeah, uh, so true.
2: Yeah. But the comfort comes in being able to say, you know, it's exactly this set of technologies that also facilitates like a, a surgeon across the world, being able to to perform surgery on, on somebody in a, in a hospital without the same facilities. Um, uh, you know, it, in that case, it probably still comes down to like MPEG encoding a video. And yeah. so, yeah. you know, there's there's for every flippant use, there's there's probably something that's doing a lot of good in the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that was, that was really well said. Yeah, I think um, yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of energy spent on um, you know how can we better use uh, free time, but then almost serendipitously we end up we end up uh, making better use of people's work time. I mean, what I'm thinking in my mind is the Google Glass, which was an originally represented as a you know B 2 C business to consumer mm-hmm. kind of product where uh, people would use it, uh, you know, in their free time or maybe as part of their daily activity. But then what ended up happening with Google Glass is, is the physician, the, the medical community, picked it up. And so, um, you know, my uh, dermatologist I've been going to for years and years, she, she's she been using this Google Glass for years and and uh, as part of her, her daily routine. And so, yeah, as you said, I mean, it's amazing how you, know, you build things. Um really, to just entertain yourself, and then, in that serendipity comes you know real amazing progress that 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 will uh, can change a whole industry
2: yeah I, and I think augmented reality is is uh, a particular industry where this is such an important concept because uh, there are lots of uses of augmented reality out there which are entertainment uses that are marketing uses uh, so for example, to take uh, snapchat face filters where uh, you know, users uh, get what we would still call short-term but delightful value out of something. So, you know, a user is going to have a have a go at a Snapchat face filter, and in 10 minutes they're not going to be using it, and probably will have forgotten about it in that time. But uh, for the time that they were using it, they enjoyed the the process of using it. They've had some interesting social interactions as a result. Um, that that process has probably been monetized by advertisers. So uh, there is a, a value chain. That goes uh, elsewhere in the um, uh, the industry, I suppose. Also, uh, and it's easy to look at a use case like that and be cynical about it, uh, and say, you know, it's it's a it's a short term entertainment experience. But at the end of the day, uh, it is delivering value for the user and for the the you know the upward chain in that industry, and also those same technologies are powering other forms of uh, of technology elsewhere, where. Um, it has a different set of value, um, a different kind of value mechanic. Um, so, so be- because this technology is necessarily very content-rich, there's just an interesting mix of of different use cases where uh, how um, uh, I, I don't want to use the word frivolous, but you know how kind of uh, how how short-term an experience is for a user versus other cases where it might be a lot longer-term. But, but in, yep. in general, it's, it's all valid use. <laughs> and yeah, and I think, think the smartphone
1: followed the same trajectory. I mean, I think uh, you, you know there was Palm Pilot and some of these things, but they didn't have good traction. What really took off was um, ultimately the, the iPod, right? So the iPod, which is a way for you to listen to music on the bus or something, um, um, you know, became very, very popular. And then they started putting a screen on the iPod. There was the iPod Touch. And uh, and then there, it was pretty obvious that people wanted Wi-Fi because they didn't want to, you know, get songs through tethering, right? And then if you have Wi-Fi, then might as well put 3G, right? And so it's like something that started off as, you know, you might say, well, why not just have music on your laptop, right? So it started off as just kind of like this luxury accessory and it turned into a way for people all over the world to to learn something new, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely and i think i think that particular example is fascinating as well because if you look at something like the pam pilots from the 90s you can see already there you know the the uh, basis of all of these little bits of technology you know i'm sure yep. pam pilots yep. could play music or mp3s or maybe wav files back in the day um, yep. and for it's easy for us to in hindsight look at that and say you know it's obvious that basically everybody's going to end up having one of these and it's going to replace their their uh, telephone is going to replace their music player, their alarm clock, their uh, like note taking, their voice recorder, you know, like you could The list is huge. And it seems obvious in retrospect. Um, but I, I imagine, I suppose at the time, it just doesn't occur to people. <laughs> and yeah, uh,
1: and I think you have yeah. to make mistakes too. like the um, and I always get this backwards, but there's the capacitive touch screen and the resistive touch screen. Um, and and one of them basically re- the, the short stories one of them requires a pen. It's just not good enough for you to use your finger on. And so if you were to use like the Apple Newton or 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 one of these bomb devices from the 90s, and you'd you'd have to use a stylus. Um, but I don't know if you could have just invented the iPod Touch touchscreen. You know, I think you had to take those stepping stones.
2: Mm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, and I wonder what the the process at at Apple uh was in terms of uh how many aha moments there were in the production of of the iPod to be like oh you know this is uh, there are so many use cases beyond what we're developing here uh yep. and and eventually you end up with what are very ubiquitous general purpose computing devices that we all carry around in our pockets
0: oh hey guys i'm going to step in here uh this episode actually has a new sponsor for us and that is Teamistry. Teamistry sponsored this episode and they're a podcast that talks about teams that work together, how teams operate, how you can operate in teams using stories from the past, stories from from current events, and just really giving you uh, helpful hints about how to be a good team player.
1: Yeah, this is totally awesome. I mean, you know, we talk so much about soft skills and uh, you know, we had an episode of soft skill about soft skills, you know, earlier um, with I think John Sanma's. Um, but you know, it's it's hard to dedicate. You know, we can't dedicate this whole podcast to that. Um, and so, you know, Team History is a podcast that really complements ours. Um, you know, I think these skills are super important. If you want to, you know, talk about how to improve things, you know, on your team, or if you just want to hear a bunch of stories of different teams, uh, you know, get practical lessons about. How you can kind of take some of those uh stories and apply them to you know the the kind of job that you do um I think there's a current season, and uh there's a season two that's coming out uh we we're fortunate enough to get a sneak peek of the second season, so uh yeah, it's pretty exciting stuff coming up
0: yeah, so the so I, some of the season two are out now, I guess we don't have seasons, we're just one giant season
1: uh, <laughs> yeah programming programming down throwdown. Throwdown. we're on our what is, is a season an entire calendar year? because I think I think it's season oh. is literally like a se- so we would be on our 20th season or something. Yeah, okay, I don't know about that.
0: But, <laughs> uh, so, so this is our second season. I believe the first season had about eight, eight episodes. The first couple are out in season two. Um, so if you check them out, you can you can see them now. And the, the first episode of the new season, season two is about uh, Watch Factory Seiko. So I, I think most people sort of know about Seiko. Um if you know about watches, they make all kinds of watches. Everyone often knows about the cheap watches they make, the little quartz watches that are, you know, mm-hmm. sell from a few dollars all the way up to they actually make very high-end um watch collector level watches that are uh I don't want to say lots of money. Um so being Tons a of sort dollars. of watch <laughs> en- <laughs> being a watch enthusiast myself, I, I knew about their brand and this talks about the story of how they set up inside of Seiko Sort of two competing teams to do research and development, um, and they were each doing their own thing. And you know, this strategy is is not super surprising. It's actually employed by you know other people as well. But I think one of the things that the episode talked about that I thought was really cool because the first time I heard what they were going to you know talk about, and it's like, oh yeah, of course it's easy to set teams up to compete, but how do you prevent them from you know you know getting at each other and it ultimately being a net negative? Um, And that actually was what they talked about, which was how the Seiko um, organized these two teams as being part of the same family, a little bit of a sibling rivalry. I don't want to give away the the sort of whole podcast, um, but talking about how they balanced the improvements they got from having parallel R&D efforts uh, without having them be in conflict with each other. And then taking through how Seiko went from um, basically, I mean, they're, they're responsible for making japanese watchmaking a a thing competing with the swiss so most people know about swiss watches i guess it's a little bit of a we would call it a meme these days but you know switch watch keeping is is the sort of pinnacle but now actually several japanese brands compete on that level and seiko was one of the ones who who really drove that and then when quartz movements came out they sort of uh came into their own and almost destroyed the swiss industry but um we yeah, will go on forever. This is not a watch podcast, so we'll keep moving. Uh, Team history. If Patrick is uh, way
1: into watches.
0: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. People who know me know this. This is not not surprising. Um, but yeah, we're very thankful for for Team History sponsorship. Definitely check it out. Uh, I think it's super critical, as Jason was saying, for engineers to not forget about those soft skills. We we like to focus on improving programming and you know being better at that. But uh, whether you want to or not, politics and teamwork are are crucial to uh, becoming a well-rounded employee um, and you can search for teamistry anywhere you listen to podcasts we're gonna add a link in the show notes uh, thanks to teamistry for their support and I'm going to turn it over back to the interview
1: so you know most people have seen the the oculus rift and all of the things along those lines so the HTC vive and so you know I'm sure people have sort of this mental image of the the thing you put over your face and and now it's even wireless I don't remember there's there's a uh, I forgot which is the one that's wireless. Uh, oh, I think there's the Oculus S Quest. Quest, that's what it is, thanks. Yeah. So so now it's even wireless. So you can imagine you know just putting this headset on and going for a walk, right? Um but when it comes to augmented reality, you know, I don't think people uh well, first of all, I don't even know really what's out there in terms of hardware, but but uh but I don't know if people have a good mental model for what that actually looks like. Can you kind of walk us through, you know, what is augmented reality now um I, I think the example you brought up where you hold up the phone that that's definitely in everyone's hands but but it, it, you know what is sort of is that the state of the art and, and what's you know coming in terms of hardware
2: absolutely uh, so i think the um certainly at zapper our primary mechanism for or, or our primary distribution mechanism i suppose for augmented reality is through your phone so uh experiences where you um either have an app or a website on your phone that uh, app or website will open up your camera and then from there it will uh, bring your environment to life either your face or your the the table in front of you so for example the app might be a a website uh, or a a retailer and they're they're selling vases um, and you would be able to, with this tool, picture what the vase would look like by just holding your phone in front of you over your your coffee table and seeing what it would look like in place. Uh, so, so that sort of uh, use case for us is where we focus. The reason we focus in in mobile uh, handheld uh, uh, distribution mechanisms is because there's a huge market there. Everybody has a smartphone, yep. um, uh, and and we now have a set of technologies where we can target that device. You know, we can. Uh, We have algorithms that run fast enough to facilitate this this type of experience on this device. But by by no stretch of the imagination, is that the only mechanism by which people can have AR experiences? It's just probably the mechanism that those that have will have had it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, there are other ways. There are head-mounted pieces of hardware. So Magic Leap, for example, is a company you may have heard of. They make a a headset where you you put it on your head. It has some screens that sit in front of your eyes, but those screens are transparent uh, but can have content on them. So most of the time when you're wearing this headset, you see the environment around you. Uh, But uh, inside that space in front of you, there will be 3D content that uh, appears to you on these screens. And as you move your head around, that content will appear rooted into your environment in front of you. Um, So uh, uh, Microsoft HoloLens, another example of the the same type of technology, uh, where you have some semi-transparent screen uh, in front of your eyes. We do uh, a similar sort of thing with head-mounted uh, display, but our, because our focus at Zapper is on things that have mar- mass market distribution, uh, we don't focus so much on expensive headsets or anything like that. We have instead a, uh, a cardboard-based headset uh, where you use your phone. So much like Google Cardboard uh, did for VR, where there's like a, a, a cardboard headset, you put your phone in it, it's got some lenses in that headset, you wear it on your head, And you get a VR experience, kind of Mm -hmm. similar to what you would get with uh, Oculus Quest or Oculus Rift or these types of technologies, but probably a little bit lower fidelity, but still pretty good. And given the fact that it costs like a a hundredth of the price, you're probably going to be happy. Um, So we've done the same thing for AR um, with uh, what we call Zapbox. So basically, it's a cardboard headset with lenses. Uh, You put your phone in it and you, you wear that. The phone shows the camera that it's uh, the camera view that it sees in front of it, so you see the world around you uh, on uh, uh, the screen of your phone, but but close to your head if you like, so it looks like you're looking straight through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we use our computer vision algorithms rather than any other kind of sensors or camera devices that are attached to the headset. We just use the, the same computer vision algorithms with the sensors that are in your phone to work out where you are in space. Uh, and um, to be able to put content into that world in front of you. Uh, And then we also have these two cardboard controllers, which uh, they look a bit funny. They've got like uh, black marks all around about them. And we use those marks to work out where those controllers are in space. So that uh, as you're holding those controllers and moving them in front of you, the camera of the phone can see them and recognize where they are. And you use those controllers to interact with the 3D content that's presented in front of you. Um, Wow, that's amazing.
1: So how much does that cost, roughly?
2: So uh, box is $30 plus uh, shipping. Um, and so wow. what that gives you is a cardboard headset, uh, the two controllers, uh, and a set of uh, markers that you can put around your environment to help the phone work out what your environment looks like. Um, we have an interesting constraint with box, which is because it's on your head, we really do need to be processing frames at 60 FPS. Because if you, if you show the camera to, to a user uh, on the screen of your phone and it's right up close so that it takes up their whole vision, people are very sensitive to the frame rate and the type of lag you might get from, from the camera when it's taking up so much of your vision. Uh, so we really need to get 60 FPS. And so for that reason, we have a very limited uh, computational budget. So every frame of the camera needs to be processed really quickly uh, in order to get the, uh, to, to maintain the 30 60fps, uh, we want to maintain, uh, and so we have these markers around which help the algorithms do that. So the, oh, the, the, the little um, little circles uh, with uh, high contrast elements, and basically what it means is we can find those in the environment much more quickly than it would take to, for example, build a huge uh, environment understanding of an arbitrary space.
1: Um, that makes sense. Like you have some high pass filter on contrast, and then these things come right
2: up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, we are we are uh, moving to using fewer of the fewer of those markers and using more of the natural environment around the user, just as devices improve and as our algorithms improve. Uh, but for the moment, the Zapbox kit concludes uh, some of those markers so that you can instrument your environment to, to help the the circumstances.
1: So, yeah, kind of a random question here, but like, uh, uh so why are you showing the the camera. So let's assume there's nothing to be shown on on nothing to be rendered on the image. Right. So, like, could you make it so that it's kind of like uh, one of these like uh, mirrors where where the camera, you know, if if your phone is just a black screen, nothing would bounce off this mirror into your eye and you would just look through the mirror to the scene behind you. But then if, you know, the camera, if the if the phone was to draw like a white circle on it, that would that would show up. So like some way to get the translucent appeal so you because my guess is if you're looking through the camera, it's not the same resolution as your eye uh
2: no, indeed not um and there is there is some lag uh and the um and it it's it a bit different to it, it of course feels different to you actually being in the the room and seeing the real environment uh but there are two there are two elements to that. So one is that if you do have virtual content, you want that virtual content to match up very closely with the, the real environment. And so if you're instead showing a screen with some virtual content on it and then the real world behind the user, you have to be able to get those pixels and that 3D content onto that screen so quickly in order for it to match up with the real world environment. Because oh. normally you have like some latency in the in the ability to render content onto the screen. And so, if you're not careful, you'd have a circumstance where you move your head, and of course, the light is coming to pe- into people's eyes at the speed of light, so they're seeing that instantly, but then it's taking the phone maybe like 50 or 100 milliseconds to actually get something into your eye that looks like some content, and during that time, your head will have moved a little bit, so you'd get this kind of effect where uh, things lag a little bit behind, the virtual content lags behind the real world a little bit. Whereas if what we do is we show the, the camera feed to the user as part of that rendering process, we can make sure that the, the 3D content is matched up exactly with the frame that is being shown to the user at the time. So you don't get that lag between content and real world. But of course, the cost is uh, the user sees this lower resolution uh, and and slightly laggy version of the camera um, that, uh, r- instead of the real world environment. Um, I personally find that 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 view is uh, if you're focusing on the virtual content, I prefer the content to register correctly with the the background environment. Uh, my brain and I, I, I'm sure the brain of others are happy mm-hmm. to deal with the lag for everything than have to deal with the disparate a disparate lag or difference in lag between the content and the environment. Um, yeah, that makes that sense. Now that, that there are there are definitely solutions which do exactly what you say and and work very well in lots of circumstances. So so one example is is a headset where you place your phone actually above uh, above your eyes and and horizontal. Um, so the phone screen is pointing down to the ground, and below the phone there is a, a I think they call it a semi semi silvered mirror. So it's it's a uh, exactly the, the the thing you describe. It's like those mirrors that you get in. Um, the interrogation cells in in police stations. Oh yeah, where like sure. the
1: police are looking at you being interrogated, but you just see a mirror.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or or the types of glass that sit in front of uh, television cameras for the auto cues, where the mm-hmm. where the the um, presenter can read what's on the text, uh, the text on this on this auto cue screen, but the users who are, or the users, <laughs> the audience mm-hmm. um, who are, who are watching the TV show. Uh, are still watching it through this glass but they don't see the the um, the text themselves it's the same kind of idea and i and i don't understand how it all works but i think it's got something to do with the polarization of light <laughs> oh, interesting uh, yeah and so you can have this circumstance where if if your content is bright enough um then it can you can show the content on that screen but still let the uh, environment behind shine through um, so you get the combination of virtual with real world environment. Um, there's, a, there's a few other kind of trade-offs in that example as well, in addition to the the lag difference between the environment and the content, which is that a lot of the time that feels kind of ethereal a little bit because the screen can never make the content completely opaque. So everything feels a little bit ghostly. Oh, that makes sense. You can see the environment a little bit through it. Um, uh, yeah, different, that different totally makes sense. Things.
1: Everything kind of looks ghostly or would look ghostly. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, but the different headsets uh, use different technologies to try and reduce that effect, and and quite a lot of them do quite a good job. So things do appear quite um, quite uh, solid and opaque.
1: Cool. So someone can go for thirty dollars and get um, basically turn their phone into kind of an AR headset um, in, in, using the Zapbox. D- does it? I'm assuming on the website it lists phones, but does it work on a, a, a iPhone and Android?
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, we have a few, uh, I suppose, recommended devices uh, just uh, because, particularly on Android, getting 60 FPS from the camera uh, is not always possible. So there are a set of Android devices which we recommend, although the app runs on a ton of Android devices. It's just mm-hmm. you might get a, a kind of more laggy experience on some of them. Um, but most of the uh, iOS devices from uh, you know two or three generations past till now uh, all all work really well. Um just maybe not iPads, because getting an iPad to sit in front of your face <laughs> <inside> <laughs> yeah, your right. might not work. <laughs> yeah. But but the the iPod touches work well uh, and as do you know iPhones.
1: Cool. So let's jump into Zappar. So so um so Zappar is targeted at folks who want to make AR content. So this would be, you know, the, the app designer behind, let's say, American Eagle, and they want to to add an AR experience. The example you gave is great where you put one of your own t-shirts and they line this one up, right? And so they would use um, your platform to to help build that.
2: Yeah, exactly. We kind of have uh, have, uh, two sides to our business at Zapper. We have one side, which is a creative content studio. So we make content for people, Uh, but the other side uh, is what we call Zapworks and it's our content uh, development platform. So we have a, a set of tools for anybody to use to go and make this kind of content. And they they range in complexity from some that are really easy to use. Let's say you want to bring your business card to life with some buttons for uh, like going through your, uh, or or sending you an email or perhaps linking to your social sites, or perhaps you want to have a video on there that you've recorded that might play as if it's on the surface of the business card. So you've got some, some simpler tools that help you make that sort of thing really easily. Uh, Then we have some uh, IDEs, if you like, so some uh, fully-fledged 3D development environments for for building content, which feel a bit like a game engine. So if you've ever built something with Unity or or that type of tool, Mm -hmm. then um, that's what this this tool feels like. It, It gives you a 3D environment. You can import 3D models. You can script the experience. Uh, and then it understands all of these different tracking types. So you could say, I'd like I'd like my character, 3D model character, to walk around on my table. And so you would have a world tracker uh, and you'd drag your 3D model into that. Or perhaps you have um, designed a, a, a hat, a 3D model hat. You could say, I want to create a face tracked experience and you could drag your hat in and position it so it would appear on the person's head. Um, And that's all integrated with like a publishing platform so you can publish that content straight away and users can access it either through our app or through the web or through our technology integrated into other apps. Uh, And then there's one final uh, element, which is all of these computer vision algorithms we also expose as a set of SDKs so people can use them in their own applications or programs. Uh, or other creative tools. so we have an SDK for unity for example so you could you could uh, build with unity a gameplay type experience using our face tracking or our world tracking or image tracking, etc. Uh, cool. so,
1: so so how would, uh, um, so how how does this work? So actually one thing real quick how does the web version work? So someone would go to a website on their phone And it would uh, it would somehow start this experience, like, I guess, using HTML5 and and WebGL and all of that.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, And the web for us is a super interesting space. Um, It's uh, very much more convenient for users in a lot of ways than app stores. So, Mm -hmm. you know, users can get to websites really quickly. Um, The uh, web now has a ton of technologies that help us do this sort of thing. It's particularly interesting for us at Zapper, also because we have—it's a competitive advantage for us, <laughs> a little bit mm-hmm. selfishly—in that our algorithms, we've been kind of on the block for quite a long time at Zapper, so our algorithms are quite heavily optimized, and also lots of them conceived for comp- uh, devices which have less computational resources than our big smartphones do now, uh, and that means that those algorithms have translated well for us to run them in web browsers. So.
1: Wow! Really cool.
2: Yeah. So what you would do is, yeah, you'd open your, your phone to a website. You might have done that by scanning a QR code first, or maybe someone's just giving you a URL or a, a link on social. And it takes you to a web page like any other. Uh, the app or the, the website will then prompt to open your camera, like as if you were you know, using uh, Zoom or Google Meet or something on your phone. Um, uh, in some cases, we'll also, so, uh, on iOS, for example, request sensor data, so accelerometer and gyro data. Yeah, it makes known. sense motion data on ios uh, and websites require permission for that so we ask for that as well but then in that web page you'll see the camera um either the selfie camera or the rear-facing camera and then much like it would in the app as you look around your environment we can you know bring content to that yeah and there's a ton of interesting constituent web technologies we use there so you mentioned webgl which we use in order to do the 3d rendering um we use Get User media which is the API for accessing the camera in the web browser. Uh, we use a technology called WebAssembly, which uh, lets us take code that's not written in JavaScript. So I suppose the language of the web is JavaScript, and, and mm-hmm. that's the kind of natural programming language you, you would use to write content for the web. Uh, but uh, WebAssembly lets you take code that's written for other in other programming languages and use them for the web. And lots of our algorithms are written in C and C++, which uh, uh, and, and WebAssembly allows us to run those in the web browser very quickly. Oh, that so makes sense. There so used to be
1: something called MScriptin. Is WebAssembly mm-hmm. like an evolution of that, or? Do you, do you...
2: Uh, yeah. So it, I suppose effectively it is an evolution. But, but actually, what MScriptin serves to do now is provide a, a, an environment for. Uh, WebAssembly. WebAssembly is quite actually a core kind of raw technology in a web browser that lets you uh, run this type of code. But uh, when you're when you're coding in a language like C and C++, there are lots more elements than just the the machine code that the compiler produces that makes things work. So you have what's called a standard library, um, and that's a set of uh, uh, programs that run. Along with your program or the program you've written, that let you access files, for example, or, or, or the network or the camera. Um, and so the standard library is a, a set of tools that accompany your program. And the WebAssembly technology doesn't provide any standard library, but MScriptin now serves that purpose. So uh, if you're you're building, uh, you're taking a program that you'd previously written in C++, you compile it with MScriptin. MScriptin will Compile it into WebAssembly, but will also provide implementations of these extra libraries that you need in order to uh, make your program run. Um, oh, I see. Yeah, and so uh, MScriptin, I suppose, originally started uh, targeting a technology called ASM.js, which is uh, the kind of precursor to WebAssembly. So ASM.js is to WebAssembly, I suppose, um, that, or that's those are the equivalent technologies, and then MScriptin serves as a layer on top of. Of Of those,
1: um, God, I guess so so basically like you write a C++ program in that program you call quicksort. Um, and so what happens under the hood is it goes to the STL or, or one of these standard libraries and fetches quicksort. Uh, the issue is on the browser, you know you don't have quicksort, and so scripting kind of provides like web assembly versions of all of that.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and another way is, um, let's say you've built a 3D program uh, in C++ using OpenGL. So OpenGL is a uh, an API uh, for native programs that allow you to use the graphics card on your computer to draw 3D uh, elements to your screen. So, for example, um, you might if you like computer games will use OpenGL to render content onto your screen. And if you've written applications in C and C++ using OpenGL, um, and then you want to use, uh, to port those using uh, Emscripten to run in the web browser, the web browser doesn't have exactly the same set of APIs. They have a slightly different but similar set called WebGL, which um, uh, has a a different set of constraints and slightly different API. What Emscripten does is it provides to your code uh, a set of APIs that are like the original OpenGL you brought your program for, but then takes those and actually runs the equivalent WebGL behind the scenes on your behalf so that the you don't have to modify your program to understand WebGL. and uh, will translate your OpenGL into WebGL.
1: Cool. That's right. Yeah, that, that's that's really fascinating. Yeah, and so, so yeah, this is really yeah. awesome. So if somebody wants to, um, let's say there's somebody out there who wants to learn this this technology, right? So they would um, get the Zap uh, Zapworks SDK. Um, let's say they wanted to, just to use a simple example, make it so when you touched on a surface, you know, a, a ball popped out of it or something. So they yep. would write, they would, they would take this SDK, um, they would make an app, uh, you know, a shell of an app around that, there would be some way to sort of trigger it, say when a person taps on the surface. There's some sort of logic to handle that, um, and then and then um, they would say, "I want this ball to fly out, you know, uh, parallel to the normal on this surface," and and under the hood, Zappar is doing all of that that heavy lifting that we just talked about and more.
2: Yeah, exactly, and different different um, of uh, different particular ones of our tools. That's not very grammatically correct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our different tools expose uh, that type of use in a slightly different mechanism. So, for example, our 3D IDE tool, uh, it's our studio tool, we call it, but it's a kind of 3D development environment for making content. All you need to worry about there is is—is is be like, I, I want to track the environment. Uh, I've got the 3D model of a ball. Um, and then you might have... Um, a little bit of script which you attach to like a pointer event, so a finger tapping event on that surface. And then you'll say, okay, when the user taps on that surface, I want to show the ball and then and then give it some, you know, velocity or take it along an animation, if you like, going upwards. And then you can publish that um, and then users can access that straight away in the browser or, or through the app or, or wherever. Um, alternatively, if you're using one of our lower level SDKs, what our lower level SDK will do is tell your code the surface is here, the surface is here, the surface is here every frame, and then um, you can incorporate that into your your program however you wish. So let's say you're doing that in Unity, then Unity will have some mechanism for working out how when the user taps on the screen, then it's up to you to to like work out how to create the mesh in the right place in Unity and give it the velocity. Um, we also have sense. other other uh, SDKs like. Um, that target uh, 3JS for example. So 3JS is a, a library for JavaScript that makes it easy to make 3D content. Um, uh, it's a, a programming um, library, so you know in JavaScript you would use it to to build a, a 3D experience. And in our SDK for 3JS, will just give you a group in 3JS, which is I suppose a 3JS concept. Uh, and then it would be up to you to to work out when the user tapped there and to you know, put the ball there and using the 3JS API, make the ball render up in the right place.
1: Cool, that makes sense. And so then working uh, in the other direction at the highest level, you have this, um, um, you have like a a real design studio where if someone wanted, um, you know, maybe for their their place of employment, they wanted some really professional content, then you're able to sort of provide more hands-on experience.
2: Yeah, exactly. And in fact, that's the bit of our business that we started with. Um so uh, back in the day, uh, my business partner and I, we were uh, working on this as a research project, this type of technology at university. And the, uh, we uh, had some commercial interest in these algorithms. And so we, we set up Zapper al- along with two others. And originally, the, the purpose of the company was to provide this type of content for uh, businesses and brands who wanted to have these uh, interesting, rich content experiences with their users. Uh, but in order to fulfill that work, in order to you know do that for our clients and customers, we had to build these tools to make it easy for us to do. Um, and then for the last three or four years or so, those tools have been a mature enough product that we we then you know sell those those tools as a product for anyone to use. So uh, they have uh, it's it's a, a true case of dog feeding. Like we, we're eating our own dog food. We made the tools so that we could use them, but it turns out they're actually very useful tools for anybody that wants to make this type of content.
1: Very, very cool. So what's the, um, so, so focusing on the tools, what's the, uh, sort of pricing, like what's the business model there? And, and, and as part of that question, you know, if someone is a, is a student, can they get their hands on a free version and and how does all of that work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So for personal use, it's free to use. Um the so you can just head to zap.works and get a personal account and you can use pretty much all of our tools with the free account. There are a few things like the kind of analytics and stuff that only really commercial users would be interested in, which are not available for personal, but otherwise a personal account has access access to all of the tools. Um, and so if you're a student that that's um, using it for your your studies or, or something like that, then you can totally use the personal account uh, for that purpose. Um, we have an education uh, tier as well. That's uh, primarily for if an institution is buying our tools uh, to use as part of a, a teaching or um, promotional uh, for promotional purposes. Uh, and they are the uh it's just like a, a significant discount uh, on, on our otherwise uh, uh, plans. And it's the, the the product is structured a little bit so you can have teachers and students and, and you know, permissions are all set up so that teachers can see what the students have made, but the students can't delete each other's content and that sort of thing. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but then if you're using it for a business, we have a few different tiers. Um, uh, they are uh, start from about $100 a month. Um and um, you basically pay on a, on a per user basis for access to the tools, much like you would with something like Creative Cloud from Adobe or, or yes, Office. Yes, that makes well. sense. Yep. Um, and we, as part of this tool, we provide a lot of hosting. So if you want to um, uh, host your content so that people can access it either through the web or through the apps, uh, we can host that all through our district content distribution network. So uh, it's a really easy process to publish and, and get your content out there uh and so we have like a um a kind of overage uh, on each of the plans so that if you get all of a sudden millions of people scanning your content then there's like a a, a per scan fee just so that basically if we don't end up with this huge hosting bill that yep, <laughs> can't pay <yep. laughs>
1: yeah i've uh, definitely definitely been there i mean we um uh, at one point we tried moving the podcast to um from one provider to another and um Um, that second provider wasn't, uh, the economy of scale was a little bit different and yeah, you'd easily rack up a very hefty bill, you know, if you're not careful. And so, yeah, you definitely need those guardrails in place.
2: Yeah. It's funny. It's one of these things that if you think like we don't seem to kind of understand as human beings, an exponential increase. So if you go from like 10,000 to a hundred thousand, it doesn't really seem to us that much of a difference somehow, like. But but it yep. is ten times more, <laughs> or if you go from hundred thousand to a million, maybe a million is a little bit different because it's so kind of ingrained in our psyche as a as a as a number. But you know, to, if you have a million people accessing your content, you've had ten amounts of a hundred thousand people accessing co- your content, which doesn't seem, that doesn't seem like uh, I mean it seems like I'm stating the obvious, but but ten times however much you paid for a hundred thousand is is gonna you're gonna notice that in your wallet <laughs> rather than Yeah, there's than, this yeah. I've been reading
1: um um there's this uh book I've been reading Philosophy for kids. I've been I've been reading it with my kids. And um there's this one philosopher and I'm not gonna remember the name. It was actually an Indian philosopher that much I remember but but his thing was basically um uh the king kind of wanted to exile this person and they said, you know, you can just make a request for me, I'll give you this request and then just leave the kingdom. And the request he made was he said, take this chessboard and go from from left to right, uh, put one grain of rice on one square and then two on the next and four on the next, and then just keep doing that pattern. And then I'll take the whole row and then I'll go. And, uh, or maybe, I don't know if it was a chessboard because yeah, two to the eighth is only 200. Maybe it was, it was, it was another game or something, but, but yeah, basically you just, the exponential, you know, the, the King said, sure. And then you quickly realize that it's, more than there are grains of rice in the universe or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's it just, it's just, yeah, people have a really hard time grasping, grasping that. And, um, what I, what I tell, uh, I recently did an interview where we talked about, um, podcasting and, the, and we, I answered a lot of questions about this particular show. And that was one of the things I touched on was, you know, if you have, uh, let's say 300 listeners and two of them, you know, have a feature request, if you go to 300,000 listeners, you're going to get 2,000 of those, of those requests. And if you're getting two of those a week, now you're getting 2,000 emails a week uh, just for feature requests. And um, yeah, it's a hard thing to really grasp. Um, I wonder why that is. I wonder what part of our psyche makes it difficult to grasp you know, exponential or you know, multiplicative things.
2: Yeah, it's, it is it is super fascinating. And I think we're kind of lucky as programmers that in a lot of ways we're taught to uh to not trust our intuition when it comes to to scale and complexity a lot of the time. You know, lots of these um uh, you know when you're if you're studying computer science and you're learning about algorithms and all of these things and big O notation, you uh you know very quickly in that process realize that Trying to intuitively work out how a particular sort mechanism is going to scale—it's something that's quite difficult to do. You you kind of yeah. need to start modeling it or, or or doing doing the kind of the prove the proofs to try and work out how how something scales. Um, uh, and a, so I think you know as a as a as a community we do better than we than maybe other communities do in terms of understanding that, or or at least it's just learning not to trust our intuition on it.
1: Yeah, that's um,
2: right. Yep. Yeah, and uh, it, it comes uh, down to uh, the or we see the same thing as you say with with trying to understand non-computational concepts as well, and how you scale something like support or or um, uh, feedback and these sorts of things is, is super interesting. And and uh, you know, as a as a developer of a product, it, it's also a fascinating process where you see lots of feedback that you get in for a particular product and you have to discern which elements of those are those that you should prioritize that that make sense for large numbers of, of your uh, users and that are feasible. And, and I find that process fascinating as well. Because uh, inevitably you're going to get a ton of users that said, but I give you this amazing idea uh, and you never implemented it. And I think it would be the best idea for your product ever. And what they don't see is that you've also had you know, 1,999 other similar yep. amazing ideas, yep. and you've had to go with the one that uh, that you know you thought would would uh, push the needle a bit more or would uh, would help more users. Um, yeah, totally.
1: Yeah. So, so the the um um so the product sounds awesome. I think everyone should check this out. Uh, totally free to try this out and. And if you do end up making the ball coming out of the surface, send that. I mean, that would be awesome. And if there's a website where we could just go and try that out, um, uh, we'll post it in the show notes if anyone builds that or, or anything, really. I think it'd be really fascinating to try it out. Um, what's it like to kind of work at Zappar? And, um, you know, what's sort of a day in the life of an engineer there? And uh, you know, especially if there's anything kind of that really stands out um, that people kind of wouldn't expect that's kind of unique, right? Um, and, and you know, are there sort of positions available and what kind of folks are you looking for?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I think one of the most uh, interesting things for me at Zapper is we have a hugely diverse range of skills at Zapper and job roles. So our uh, business, because we have this side of the business that's a creative uh, development studio as well as having our platform side of our business. So the, the side that makes these tools, uh, we end up with, you know, we have uh, designers, we have 3D artists, we have content developers who are, you know, using JavaScript and TypeScript day-to-day to build AR experiences. Uh, and then, and I suppose the team that I look after, we have uh, web developers who are working on web-based AR creative tools. We have uh, people looking after our content management system. So Zapworks allows you, as we mentioned, to host content and publish it for users. And so we have a management system for that. So there are people developing and working on that. We have our support team as well who uh, help our um, uh, users and users of our tools get the most out of those tools and answer any questions that they might have. we have a QA team and sales and uh, you know business development. So there's there's a, a huge different uh, uh, number of roles and uh, that's what makes makes Zappa really interesting. The people that we get to work with are, are all an incredibly talented bunch and are all really fun to work with. Um, and it means also I, I, maybe this is the unique element, um, but it's 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 maybe interesting. For for us, but not necessarily an interesting insight, which is that it changes a lot. We work on lots of different content all the time, and we have lots of interesting new technology that we're working on, and new tools that we're building all the time. So, it's uh, it it never really stands still very much. Um, Yeah, that makes
1: sense. I mean, you're right at the forefront of something. So, you know, I feel that's one of the challenges with the smartphone is is uh, you know if you if you look at um, you know, I made a uh, machine learning game just to kind of teach kids machine learning. Um, and I made an app. Um, I haven't published it or anything. One of the challenges there is there's just so many apps that, uh, that you know, even, you know, I mean, the plan is just to give it away for free, but it's hard to even do that because, uh, you know, it's like what what keyword hasn't really been taken or, or how will people be able to find this when there's just so much um, um, content out there? and and the the platform that you're working on is really a green field um you know and, and and who knows when that device will come out um or even you know when the environment changes as it has with with the um covid nineteen that that causes that huge explosion of growth right so it's it's like a great time to be in this area
2: uh, absolutely and I think uh, to your point about um about apps and uh you know tr- trying to kind of outshine other apps and what have you, I think what we'll see is uh, a continuation that the web is the ultimate app delivery platform, if you like. And in the same way, you know, we uh, if we're making a website, we will do perhaps SEO optimization to try and, you know, make it so that users find our site or we um, we look to uh, social media or you know, lots of other forms of uh, of getting our websites out there for people who are interested to find them. Uh, we never kind of think, you know, how, how am I going to make my website appear near the top of uh, of the big list of websites that there is? There's no big list of websites. Yeah,
1: it's a really um, good point.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so uh, I, I suspect uh, that we will continue to see the web just blossom Um, and more and more the types of applications that we would be used to having as apps on our phones will actually access uh, through really nice and tightly in, uh, implemented um, uh, web applications.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, also you have a truly neutral platform, right? I mean, I think the app store, um, you know, I know the, plate, the where I work at now, there's, there's tons of challenges with getting apps approved. Um, it takes forever, even, even when there aren't issues, right? And you just have kind of like this constant gatekeeper, at least on iOS, on on Android. Um, um, I don't know too much about the Android App Store experience. But my guess is it's similar. Um, maybe the turnaround time is faster. Oh, no, actually, you can publish without any any review, right, on Android?
2: Um, it, it certainly used to be the case, yes. Uh, although different uh, apps on, on Google do get reviewed now, but I think they're kind of triaged and uh, uh, apps which are considered by Google to be more worthy of, of close inspection will will take longer. So I think, for example, if you're part of the Designed for Families program, they will have a closer look at your app Makes or sense. if you request certain sets of permissions and what have you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But the web is, uh, you know, it's, it's you don't have to install anything like the, the app installs when you go to the website and uninstalls when you leave every time, you know.
2: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, there are lots of reasons why I think that having the web is a healthy thing for society uh, in terms of it being, uh, you know, it doesn't have gatekeepers necessarily. Um, of course, you know, websites uh, are still bound by the laws that exist in our various different countries. Sure. Yeah. That doesn't stop some websites. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh,
2: but at the end of the day, uh, the only thing that uh, stops you publishing a website is your you know, creative—the the point where you decide I'm willing to get this out there and make it and see what happens—and um, yeah. I think that's good. That's good for a society, um, and it's a, a reason I think why you know, as these web browsers get uh, better, they're able to expose more of the devices, technology-wise, like we were speaking about WebAssembly, and and get user media, the camera API, for example. Um, I think we'll get to a place where where the, the web is just the ultimate application platform. And it will be the exception rather than the rule when you have to be running native code on, on a device as part of like a big proper installation.
1: Yeah, totally makes sense. So, so are you folks hiring? Is there Are there internships? Are there full-time positions? What does that look like right now?
2: Yeah, well, we do have a, a set of roles up at uh, zapper.com, our, our careers page there. Uh, so definitely worth looking at. Uh, Throughout the kind of latter half of this year, we are beginning to think more about um, not necessarily having to have a ruby in London, which is is interesting, just because we are, uh, you know, uh, thanks to um, the the big COVID word, we are uh, yeah. Uh, Embracing working from wherever you like, or for the, uh, working from where you work best, I suppose. Um, we do have some constraints, of course, like we are a UK based company, and so we need to um, uh, hire people who are eligible to work in the UK. Um, but other than that, uh, we are uh, uh, exploring more uh, wide opportunities in terms of where people are, which is, is super exciting and interesting.
1: Cool. If someone wants to come for a summer, like a co-op or internship or something, you know, I know a lot of like uh, um, companies are just starting, especially when things are changing. You know, they they don't they feel like they can't provide like a consistent, you know, sort of stable internship program. And I think, you know, I mean, I think we talked to Rob Zuber for Circle CI, and um and and he kind of echoed that. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I think. I mean, even you know even bigger companies have a really hard time, um, saying in January, okay, when you come in the summer, this is what you can work on. Um, and so, you know, it makes sense. So is interning something that you're doing right now or not yet? Uh,
2: uh absolutely. We've in fact just, uh, hired an intern role, um, for the next uh, couple of months in one of our positions. Uh, and we have had, uh, student level interns uh, over the summer in in past years as well and have had some fantastic contributions from from those individuals and we don't have a specific program i suppose we're still a relatively small business mm-hmm. uh, but we're always willing to to hear from people that are are interested and willing to come and learn and um hopefully we, we all get value from the circumstance and and uh, produce some interesting things together so uh, and all that i think that one of the the overriding things at Zapper is we're just always willing to have a conversation, be that with uh, potential candidates, be that with interns, be that with our customers or or those who are using our tools. Um, we just always want to chat. <laughs> so cool. uh, yeah, get in touch.
1: Yeah, it sounds like and and please uh, you know some add color to this, but yeah, it sounds like one of the best ways for somebody who might be in college now or in high school now that's that that that's really interested in this is just to start using it I mean there's no barrier to entry here. Um, just start building some stuff and um, and then and then you know they can sort of uh, reach out or they could you know have a little portfolio and and that can kind of get the ball rolling
2: absolutely and you know it's it's very similar to for example, if you're interested in computer game development, any of these technologies that marry creative work with technical work, be that so 3D modeling versus programming or, you know, web development uh, versus uh, graphical design and and UI and UX. Uh, If you jump into a project of your own just because you want to make something, you end up touching so many of these different areas. And if you're early in your career, that will help you work out the bits that you're interested in, the bits that you're good at, uh, and therefore the, the bits that you want to take further. Um, so I definitely recommend people to to just have 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 a little think about something you'd like to see, and then see if you can make it. Um, be that a computer game, be it something AR, be it whatever you like.
1: Cool, awesome, and so yeah, this is this. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, this is uh, absolutely fascinating. I mean, honestly, there's so much uh, there, there's so much content here that that I'd love to really dive into. Um, um, we've touched everything from understanding kind of high level geometry, random maths, uh, all the way to building products. Um, so, so thanks for your time. Absolutely. Um, uh, if folk, oh, go ahead.
2: I was just going to say thank you very much for having me, it's been a pleasure.
1: Cool. Cool. If folks want to reach out, um, what we'll do is we'll post, uh, you know, uh, some links where folks can reach out to you. And also you can check out, um, zapar.com. That's with an a correct Z-A-P-P-A-R.com. That's right. And zap.works, um, is for the, for the SDK.
2: Yep. That's right. Absolutely.
1: Cool. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Um, thank you listeners out there, uh, for all of your support on, uh, on Patreon and checking out our audible, uh, membership and, uh, We will catch you folks next month. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I, and uh, share alike in kind.